Good morning, everybody. Uh, I was sick last week, and my daughter Lucy was sick last week also. She's not quite two, and she kept going, church, church. So she, we, we both missed being here, especially for such a special uh, week. My wife, Brandy, loved me well by taking lots of videos uh, during the congregational meeting, and last Sunday afternoon, I watched those videos, and my favorite part was after the vote, when the Groff family came back in the door and was met with applause and cheering, and um, it, it did my heart good to see that, because <clears throat> I told Tyler weeks ago, I said, if Orangewood votes to call you as their pastor, you don't have to worry about being the new guy and being met with skepticism because Orangewood is a loving family and they're gonna welcome you. And it, it was so good to see that that's exactly what happened and I didn't even have to be here to police that. So <laughs> thank you for that. Um, so we're diving back into Mark. We're gonna be looking at the end of Mark 12 today. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Um, if not, it's in your bulletin and it'll be on the screen behind me here. But I'm gonna pray and we're gonna dive in. God, thank you so much for your word and then we get to approach your word um, in a language that we can read and understand and that we can talk about it publicly. Lord, uh, there's a tangible sense of excitement and hope here at Orangewood and yet I know that many people come with heavy burdens this morning and I pray that by your grace we can all pause and be still and know that you are God and that we can hear your word for us and um, your love and your will for us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, <clears throat> um, often when you hear Pastor Chuck preach, you'll hear him say things like, I used to be an engineer. By the way, I cleared this with him so that I'm not taking him by surprise, but often you'll hear him refer to the fact that he used to be an engineer. Have you heard him say that before? If you haven't heard his story, it's a cool story. You should hear it. He was an engineer working for DuPont, making what I imagine must have been really good money. And then the Lord got a hold of him and called him away from a lucrative career in engineering. And he took a low paying uh, intern position working with youth. And if he tells it, he won't spin it that way. He'll tell you about the goodness of God. But I want you to know that's the kind of pastor you want, someone who is willing to give up status and money and career to serve Jesus. But I want to tell you a story about myself that maybe you don't know. Before I uh, started seminary and started the path to ministry, I worked for Google. I worked for Google for about a year. I was a quality rater and I did a lot of traveling in my job for Google. And if that sounds impressive, it shouldn't because uh, here's the actual deal with me working for Google. I uh, found a job that I could work while I was on the road with my band. So I, I bought a, like this 
card for my computer where I could be online. And I, I, I worked this job that was only for my computer doing really menial, boring things that I'm pretty sure did not matter. And the weirdest part is I never met or talked to a single human being during my interview process, the whole time I worked for them. It sounded really good to put Google on my resume, but like when I would look for a reference, I would literally have to pilfer through my emails just to see if an actual human being from HR ever like emailed me. And so there's a way that I can kind of spin the story where it makes me sound really special. But the fact is Google didn't know me and didn't give a rip about me. But <clears throat> the passage that we're going to look at today is Jesus confronting um, this same phenomenon. And I won't say that he confronts it head on because I think it's actually pretty subtle. But he confronts it nonetheless. And we're jumping back into the Mark series, back into the middle of a chapter. So I'll give you just a quick uh, refresher on where we are. We are in Jesus' Passion Week, the week leading up to his crucifixion. So the triumphal entry was on Sunday, and in chapter 12, we're on Tuesday of that week. And Jesus has been hanging out in the temple and teaching some and just observing some. And all of the Jewish authorities are against Jesus at this point, and they're looking to destroy him. They're looking for any shred of evidence they can get against him. So they sent Pharisees. Herodians and Sadducees to question him. And they're not even on the same side. They just have the same enemy. But it's almost comical. Um, I was thinking it's kind of like in a Bruce Lee movie when the bad guy keeps sending his greatest warriors and then Bruce Lee just like knocks the junk out of them and makes them look really silly. It's kind of like that with Jesus. And then after all these questions, a scribe comes and asks Jesus what the greatest commandment is. And to be fair, I don't know that this scribe was necessarily out to get him. I think he actually just wanted to know. But Jesus answers wisely, and he answers quoting Deuteronomy 6.4. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That was very important for Jews because that is orthodoxy. That is right thinking. And that is monotheism. There is one God. See, the Jewish authorities wanted... Jesus to say something that was contrary to scripture, but he didn't actually go against scripture. He affirmed it. So in verse 34, we're told that after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And that's the part where you see Bruce Lee just kind of grinning and going, anybody else? Anybody else want some? So where we pick up in verse 37, Jesus is going to ask them a question. So read with me, Mark 12, uh, 35, through 37. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of God? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. So Jesus starts with a jab at the scribes. And we've talked about scribes before, but I want you to remember who they are. The scribes were clerks who copied scripts, which is how they got their name. But they also did things like write uh, deeds for the sale of land or write certificates for marriage. 
And so they were sort of like lawyers of the first century. So the important thing we need to take from this is Jesus really dislikes lawyers. <laughs> I'm obviously kidding. There are at least three here that I know that he likes. Um, but the, these were sort of like lawyers for the first century. But you've got to think, in them being experts on the law, that meant civil laws like deeds for land and things like that, but it also meant the law, the Torah, the scriptures. They were experts on the scriptures, and many of these so-called experts on the scriptures were the very people that were trying to take Jesus down. And so now he is going to use scripture to basically say, don't you see that all these scriptures you know are pointing toward me and you don't even see it? And he does it here, quoting Psalm 110. And Jesus tells us three important things about Psalm 110. First, he tells us that David is the author. So we don't have to quibble about if David was the author or not. The Son of God says that he is. Second, Jesus tells us that David wrote this psalm in the Spirit, meaning it's the inspired Word of God. And third, he tells us that this psalm refers to the Christ, and for us, when we think of Christ, we think of that as like Jesus' last name. I'm Mark Nix. He's Jesus Christ. But to first century Jews, it was not a name, but a title. And that's why the direct article, the, is there. The Christ. <clears throat> it's a royal term. So Christ is Greek for anointed one. And Messiah is Hebrew for anointed one. So Christ and Messiah both mean anointed one, and that is referring to God's anointed king. So <clears throat> it can sound a bit confusing to hear. If you look on the screen, the quote of Psalm 110 starts, the Lord said to my Lord. That sounds confusing because it literally sounds like God is talking to himself. But in Hebrew, there are two different words that both get translated Lord into English. And so the first time that it says Lord, it's Yahweh. You've probably heard that. That's the divine name of God. So it's like God said to my Lord. The second word that it uses for Lord is Adonai. And that can be a term that would refer to God, but it could also be used like our word Lord with a lowercase l, like when you say my Lord, my lady, that kind of thing. So Basically, David was saying, God says to my Lord. Do you follow me? So if the implication is that Jesus is the Messiah, then we could infer that Psalm 110 is God speaking to Jesus. So we could even paraphrase it and say, God said to Jesus, sit at my right hand. Do you follow that argument? So the common expectation for these first century Jews was that the Messiah was going to be a son of David, and it was based on lots of prophecies. And when we say son of David, that means a descendant of David, not like an actual son, but it could be generations later and still considered a son of David. And we know that Jesus was a descendant of David from the genealogies that are in Matthew and in Luke. And I want you to think the triumphal entry that we talked about a few weeks ago, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, the crowds were saying, 
Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. So they are looking for a Davidic king, and they are right to look for that. They're right to call Jesus that because he doesn't say, no, no, I'm not a son of David. The point here is not that Jesus isn't a son of David. It's that he's something so much more than just a son of David. And I want you to try to follow the logic that Jesus is using here. David is the king, the first in line, and all of his descendants are considered his sons. But when David speaks of Jesus, when he speaks of the Messiah, he doesn't say, my son or my descendant, like we would expect. He says, my Lord. King David, who these people called their father, says, my Lord, when he talks about the Messiah. For the first century Jews, this had to rattle them. Not us so much, but for them, they're thinking the Messiah that we've been waiting for is even greater than David, and it's been right here in Psalm 10 all along, but we didn't see it. From the research that I've done, it doesn't seem that Jewish scholars in this time looked at Psalm 110 as a messianic psalm. In other words, it doesn't seem like they would have read this and thought that's talking about the Christ, the anointed one. But Jesus talks about it and says, it does, it's talking about me. And then in the New Testament, it goes on to be the most quoted Psalm. But most of us don't think of Jesus as son of David. We think of Jesus as son of God, so it doesn't hit us as hard, right? So even the book that we're reading, Mark, the very first verse says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. But I want you to consider how much of a paradigm shift it would have required for the original audience. If the Messiah, if the Christ were just a son of David, just another king, it required very little of anyone. And sure, you have to be submissive to the king as far as that goes, but you don't have to like him. And I want you to think about yourself. We all know very well that it's possible to have a leader that you follow because it's the right thing to do and it's the legal thing to do, but you don't much like him or her. Would you agree? In the past 10 years, chances are whatever end of the spectrum you fall on politically, you've had a president that you would follow, but you don't much like them. They may have your compliance, but they don't have your allegiance. They don't have your heart. When you drive home today, if you choose not to speed, it's because of your great love for the Florida Department of Transportation, right? No, we don't speed because we don't want to get a ticket. But if our leader, if our king is the Messiah, the son of God, we follow rules for a very different reason, not for fear of punishment, because Jesus paid the debt for all of our sins. If we are followers of the Lord, we don't have to fear punishment, but we keep the laws of God because he's good and his laws tell us how to live a good life. We keep the laws of God because that's what Jesus did and we want to be like Jesus. And we keep the laws of God because we love him. 
that's quite a different thing than just having an earthly leader. So I want to ask this. I'm seriously asking this. I want you to raise your hand if you've ever met a president of the United States. Okay, I think I see six hands. I saw you. All right, so of those six-ish who met a president, I want you to raise your hand if you think he would still remember you. (laughs) Nobody. So in a room where so few of us have met the ruler of our country, do you realize how incredible it is that you have access to the king of all creation? It's not like Google where I worked for them, but they never actually knew me and I never actually knew them. Your king knows you. The Christ, the Messiah, the one who was prophesied about for hundreds and hundreds of years, who's been celebrated for thousands of years, knows you. And we could stop right there because I think that's enough, but we're only halfway through the passage but I want you to let that hit you. The king knows you. Let's continue reading in verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So Jesus is going after the scribes again and all the things that Jesus says that they like were common examples of the sort of treatment that scribes received. And I do want to say, I don't think every scribe was evil and I don't think that's what Jesus was saying. There's a difference between um, receiving honor for the job that you do and doing the job for the honor. Does that make sense? But he he lists all these things that they like about being scribes. The first is they like to walk around in long robes. The scribes wore an outer garment called a talith, and lots of Jews did, but theirs were more ornate. They were longer. They would stand out in a crowd so that you would immediately know this is a scribe. And they were supposed to only wear them when they were saying prayers or when they were doing scribal duties. But by the first century, it had become common for scribes to just wear them around everywhere so that they would be seen and known for how special they were. And when I was studying this, it made me think about when I was nine years old, I played baseball and I was horrible at baseball. But If I had a game and I knew I was going to see friends that day or go to lunch or something like that, I would make sure I had my uniform on all day so that I would look like an athlete. And I remember one time uh, we were going to see some of our friends after a game and I went in the backyard and slid around so that I'd have grass stains on my legs so that it looked like I went really hard in a game. My mom killed me for that. So that never happened again. But that's the same kind of childish thing that the scribes were doing. Like, I'm just going to wear my scribe robes in the marketplace so that everybody knows that I'm special. Jesus says that they like the best seats in the synagogue. And again, a lot of this stuff that the scribes did, it wasn't prescribed in 
scripture, like the Old Testament, it had become part of the tradition. And by the first century, it had become the tradition that the scribes would sit up front in the congregation in almost like throne sort of chairs facing you so that everybody could tell just from where they were sitting that there was something special about them. And in the same way, it says they liked the places of honor at feast. That one meant sitting at the right hand of the host. The closer in proximity you were to the host of a feast, the more special you were. So you could just look and see who the most special person in the room was. And I think it's worth noting that in the passage right above this, we saw God inviting the Messiah where? To sit at his right hand, to sit at the place of honor. But here we see the scribes taking that seat of honor, not because they're called by God, but because they put their robes on and they assume those seats of honor. And Jesus said the scribes devour widows' houses. They weren't allowed to charge for their teaching, but it had become the custom for them to take money from people and those people would be blessed if they gave them money. And widows were known to pay them to pray prayers for them and their family because apparently the devout scribes, their prayers go farther than a devout widow. Jesus insinuated that these scribes were abusing their place of honor and authority to bring glory to themselves and to exploit others for material gain. And for that, they would be condemned. But we don't really need to talk about that because we don't have scribes today. So there's no application for us whatsoever in this. There are no people in our civilized culture who would exploit their authority to take advantage of the weak, right? Uh, No one would use their status to get special treatment or put forth a pretense for personal gain. You never hear of people in the name of religion taking advantage of other people, do you? The specifics have changed, but the same heart problems have plagued humanity ever since the fall. And when we look at this passage, or really when we look at any passage, I think a good question to ask is, what does this passage tell us about the heart of God? In community group, when we're going through these narratives and Bible storing, that's almost always a question that I ask. What does this passage tell us about the heart of God? And when we're looking at teachings of Jesus, often the answer is something like this. This passage shows us that God has a heart for the least of these. The poor, the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, the marginalized. And I think the same can apply to this passage here. We see that God looks at our hearts and not at our worldly status. And you might remember a few weeks ago, Chuck preached on Mark 10. And Jesus said, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be great among you must be be your servant. Whoever would be great among us must be a servant. So this morning, the place of honor is down the hall with a man who's watching kids in the nursery when he would rather be in this room. The place of honor is the 12-year-old boy who's going to help his dad fold these chairs up when we're done. 
The place of honor is the lady who stands at the door and smiles at you and hands you a bulletin on your way in. The place of honor is not the pulpit. It's not the worship leader. The greatest among us are those who serve. Most of us here are blessed more than the vast majority of the world. And I think you know that. None of us really get that, but I think we've all heard the stats. After this, we know that we'll have food to eat. And we'll not just have food to eat, but we'll be able to choose what kind of food we want and we'll have more than we need. Some of us live in mansions and some of us rent a room in someone else's house, but the fact is we all have a place to lay our head tonight which means we are not the least of these. We are the most prosperous of these. And so I believe that the application to us is this. Please use what God has blessed you with to bless others. And that may be resources. It may be influence or authority. It might be your time. It might be your talents. Whether you have great wealth or you've got just enough to get by, you have the chance to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And you have the chance to seek the glory of the king rather than seeking your own. Let's read the last verses in chapter 12. Starting in verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow is put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So it seems that just like some of the scribes would make a big deal about how holy they were, there were people with lots of money giving big gifts. And I won't get into the details of where they were in the temple, but it's also worth noting that they were doing this in a busy part of the temple on the busiest week of the year. They wanted to be seen given these gifts. But then there's a woman He's described as both poor and a widow. The least of these definitely in Roman culture. She gave two coins, which are called leptos in Greek, and it means something like thin or small. And it was the uh, smallest denomination of coin in circulation at the time. Two of those little coins would equal a penny. What do you do with pennies? If you were leaving this morning and a homeless person came up and asked you for money and you sincerely wanted to give them some and you realized the only cash you had on was a penny, you wouldn't give it to them because it would feel like an insult, wouldn't it? Yet a penny is all that this poor widow had to live on. And she gave it all. Jesus says, the poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. And we all get the, G- the point that Jesus is making, but at the same time, it's like, 
No, no, that's not more. That can't be more. You can't even do anything with a penny. If what this woman gave was more than all the other contributions, then Jesus must be speaking of some measure other than monetary value, right? So what do you think he's measuring? I mean, really sit with that. What do you think Jesus is measuring when he says that this poor widow gave more? Is it the heart of the one who gives? Is it the motive for giving? Or is it the amount of sacrifice that it costs the one who gives? I think, honestly, any of these, maybe all of these, are good ways of looking at what Jesus says. But this is what I've wrestled with. I mean, really wrestled with. What does this mean for us? What is this What are we supposed to do with this? Most of us know this story. It's a cool story. We like this story. But if you sit with it, it makes you uncomfortable. If a poor widow came forward this morning, or not come forward, because I don't think that's what the poor widow did, but if you knew that a poor widow gave all that she had to live on I don't think any of us would be okay with that. In fact, I think we would ask her to reconsider that. Say, yeah, definitely give, but don't give it all. Don't give all you have to live on. But is that what Jesus is calling us to? To give it all. Or maybe this message is just to the wealthy who give out of their abundance. So God calls you to give all that you have to live on. But who's the wealthy How do you decide when you've crossed that line? How do you know if it applies to you? And then what is all you have to live on? Does that include your investments? Does that include your kid's college fund? Where do we draw the line here? If you sit with these three little verses for very long, and I hope that you will if you haven't, they begin to really mess with you. And there's no one that it doesn't hit because we're either poor or we have abundance. Either way, Jesus is speaking to our hearts about something far greater than money. He's ultimately asking, what king do you serve? Who is your Lord? So it's probably not what you want to hear, but I can't spell out exactly what this passage means for you because I think it hits us all from different angles. But these three short teachings in the verses that we've looked at I think they give us a pretty complex, beautiful picture of who Christ is. Because if you think about the scribes, they wore big robes. They sat in special chairs. They gave flowery speeches. They were recognized by everyone. It sounds like a king, doesn't it? But then there's Jesus, the king of kings, and God called him to sit at his right hand. But how did Jesus conduct himself? Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Doesn't sound like a king. The wealthy people in the temple made a show of their gifts to bring glory to their generosity. But it really cost them very little because they gave out of their abundance. But Jesus, who made all things and is Lord of all things, emptied himself. And when it was time for him to give something, when it was time for him to make an offering, he made an offering on our behalf. And Jesus gave it all. I love the gift of the widow because there's a sort of recklessness to it. You know what I mean? And all the great stories of faith that stir our heart up, they all have this sense of recklessness, this sense of this doesn't quite make any sense, but I'm going to do it anyway because I think this is where God's leading me. Although that poor widow was small in the eyes of the world, she had the eyes and the the faith to see that God was her provider all along. And God doesn't need our resources to take care of his family. It's not about the money. It's about the Lord. And I don't want you to think this is some heavy-handed message to try to twist your arm so that you'll give more to Orangewood. I mean, the fact is, I'm sure the finance committee would love if that's what you took away from this. But, but that's not the point of this. The, the fact is, we have many here, rich and poor, who give a lot of money, but also of time and gifts. Everything you see this morning, someone had to set these chairs up. Someone designed these slides The band didn't just show up this morning. They had to practice. Everything requires a lot of time and effort and service. But this is a chance for each of us to slow ourselves from the rush and urgency and the worry of our lives and remember who Jesus is, that Jesus is Lord, that he gave all he had, and it's ours. All he had. He gave, and it's ours. So what do you want to do with it? What do you want to do with it? I ask you to reflect on that as we come to the Lord's table this morning, okay? Let's pray. God, I pray as we come to the Lord's table that even the word Lord would mean something new. That we would remember our first love, that maybe we would taste something for the very first time, that you would truly nourish our souls. Lord, speak to our hearts and show us what it means for me today to give it all. Show us what it means for me today to not just say, to not just proclaim, but to live out the truth. Jesus is Lord. We can't do it on our own and we fail constantly, but we thank you so much that there's grace. Thank you that 
thank you so much that Jesus paid it all for every sin, for those who come to him and call him Lord. We ask all these things in his holy name. Amen. So we're about to take communion and we're going to do it just slightly differently than we normally do um, in light of I mean, there's coronavirus. It's like the thing that no one wants to say, right? Um, but we want to take it seriously. Aside from that, I think everyone I know, at least someone in their family, has had a cold in the past week. I know that I have. So uh, we're going to do communion slightly differently, and we don't want you to take it as, like, restrictive or panic-inducing. But we've just prayed about it and thought about it as pastors and as your staff, and we want to make sure that we care well for you. So... The way we normally do it is you come and you rip off a piece of bread and then you dip it in a cup. And obviously there's some issues there if you're trying not to spread germs. So the way we're gonna do it this morning is you're still gonna come up and you're gonna receive the elements, but the bread is gonna be cut into little cubes for you. And if you accidentally get a huge piece, you don't have to break it off, just it's the Lord's favor on you. And, <laughs> and we're also gonna have little cups of juice and you don't have to dip anything, you just drink it. Um, but we would encourage you to receive the elements and then maybe take them back to your seat. We don't wanna tell you how you have to take the elements, but um, as you receive the bread and the juice, we encourage you to reflect and think what this means because we're called to examine ourselves when we come to the Lord's table and so in light of that, I want to tell you that this is not just for Presbyterians. It's for anyone who calls themselves a Christian, who proclaims that Jesus is Lord. So if that's you, if you are a broken sinner in desperate need of a savior, this table is for you. If you haven't yet made that decision, we would ask that you refrain from it. And if you have small children who haven't yet made that decision and sat with our elders, we would ask that you Keep them from coming. Um, so in just a moment, we'll come and receive the elements. We're not going to use this bread, by the way. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. This do in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. When you're ready, you can come receive it. <clears throat> 